Good morning. I'm Ellie Jones, and our scripture today is from Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 22. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. So I've uh, been on a quest <clears throat> for a while. I've, uh, I've always had this goal in mind to uh, read the, the canon of Western literature, the classic canon. And I was thinking ahead, you know, my daughter graduates from high school in 11 years. Maybe that's enough time for me to achieve this goal. So I, I made a list, and I've, I've, been, I've been reading. Every month, I've got a couple of books to read from this list, but I keep finding myself getting distracted by other books, new books, exciting ones, ones with you know, current blurbs written about them on Amazon or wherever. And so I kind of identify with the, the character of Odysseus from Homer's Odyssey. It's this classic Greek quest. Right? Odysseus, or Ulysses, as the Romans called him, he has to navigate past this island that is inhabited by sirens, these mythical half-woman, half-bird creatures whose song is so compelling that any man who hears it will immediately turn the ship towards the island, only to dash himself upon the rocks and, as the text says, join the pile of bones moldering on the shore. It's very picturesque. And this is just one of the many challenges that Odysseus has to face as he's making his way home after the war. So to get through, to get past this particular challenge, uh, Odysseus orders all of his men to put wax in their ears so that they can't hear the song of the sirens. Uh, but for himself, he wants to hear it because it's said to have, you know, communicate wisdom. So he orders his sailors to tie him to the mast of the ship. Tie him tightly with bonds that he can't loosen, and if he ever at any point indicates to them, no, no, it's okay, let me go, which he would assumingly do with his eyebrows, because uh, he's tied up. Um, if he ever says, let me go, then they're supposed to come with more ropes and tie him even tighter, which is exactly what they do. And it's how they get past the island and then navigate, and, you know, and on and on. See, his... His desire to return home to his fatherland, to make his way back to his wife and his son, uh, his house, his land, and all of his property, you know, back to his home, uh, was so strong that he wouldn't allow any delaying distractions or temporary temptations to shipwreck his progress. 
a lot of opportunities come up throughout his quest to just stop. Stop wandering. Settle down here. Become the immortal husband of a god here. Live in this beautiful place over here. But no place was his home. So he kept moving. See, when you are on your way home, nowhere on the way is home. When you're on your way home, nowhere on the way is home. And that's obvious to us if we're talking about travel or a long journey or even an extended Homeric quest. But it's also true of our everyday existence. None of us are home. We're all on our way. See, we're all living in a world that doesn't fit, doesn't match our deepest longings. We're all looking for some place that does, a place that one author says just absolutely fits and suits us, where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. But we live in this reality that no real place or actual family ever satisfies those urgings. We're always longing for more. Now, I know, I know we're all on the way home. We're all longing for more. We're all looking for home because all of us have made the boneheaded and just plain stupid decisions to, to grab onto something, something in front of us that we think will satisfy. We've heard the siren call that says, this is your home, and we've gone for it. Maybe for some of us, it's been trading in one relationship for another or bouncing from job to job to job trying to find the one that we think is going to satisfy us. Maybe it's spending more money than what we actually have or trying to look like a person that we're not. See, we're all on the way. None of us are home. In his book, Prodigal God, the author and pastor Tim Keller writes, the message of the Bible is that the human race is a band of exiles trying to come home. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus left his home in order to bring us home with him, but we're not there yet. We're still in the in-between. We're still on the way. So to live well on the way, not yet home, longing for and seeking our true home, we need what the first readers of Hebrews needed. We need examples Pictures, people of faith who have walked this path before us and can at least show us it's possible. You can do it. You can walk this path of being on the way and remain faithful. That's what we find all through Hebrews 11. This morning, we're considering verses 13 through 22 of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. So the author says, these all died in faith. These all, he's referring back specifically to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, the, the patriarchs, the fathers of the, is, uh, the Jewish nation. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They all died in faith, and before we go much further in the passage, I want to remind us of what we mean when we use the word faith in the context of Hebrews 11. Uh, You may remember from the very first verse of the chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, we were given a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
probably more a description of faith than a definition of it. Because remember, the whole point of chapter 11 is that the author of Hebrews is giving his readers, he's giving us a catalog of people whose lives were sustained by their faith. These are examples of people who lived in the wilderness, in the wandering between the kingdom they left and the kingdom they're going to, whether they left exile from the garden or Ur or Egypt or an Israel that had fallen into disobedience. They're living in between leaving and arriving in the promised land or the kingdom as God intended it. They're not yet home. Now, his original readers were wandering in this same metaphorical wilderness. Uh, They, too, had been saved by Jesus, but not yet saved to Jesus, not yet delivered to their eternal home, not yet fully satisfied. They still lived in this world of persecution and trial, sin, and the temptation to abandon the faith, to go back to the old way, the way that was easier. They're not yet home, just like us. It's our situation too. We have been saved by Jesus, but not yet saved to Jesus, not yet delivered to our ultimate home, to the land that God has promised to us. So in that context, he reminds us, faith is the assurance of something that you're hoping for. It's the conviction of something that you haven't yet seen. Faith, in other words, is the ability to look at the God who has made us a promise now and trust that even though we can't see the fulfillment of that promise, that he will make it happen. He will bring it to pass. He will fulfill his promise then. Faith is the ability to say, I haven't seen the promised land, but I've seen the God of the promised land, and I know I can trust him. It's the assurance of something we're hoping for, the confidence of something we haven't yet seen because we've seen the one who has promised it. So look again at verse 13. These all died in faith. They died without seeing. They died without seeing the things, that the the promises fulfilled. They hadn't seen with their own eyes. They're still waiting for the promises to be fulfilled when they died, waiting to end their wandering. And finally be home. That's what verse 13 says. They all died in faith not having received the things promised. They didn't see full possession of the land or the the founding of the nation of Israel or the the experience of, of blessing for the entire world coming through Abraham. But, the verse says, they didn't receive the promises or that the things promised, the fulfillment of the promises, but they have seen them, the things promised, and greeted them from afar. They've seen them and greeted them from a distance. My wife is the queen of the countdown chain. You probably have somebody like this in your family. Every upcoming event of significance requires a countdown, uh, some man or some fashion. One time she created a 150-loop-long countdown. That's almost half a year. 150 days just leading up to the Summer Olympics. And every ring was the color of one of the Olympic rings, all five of them, 30 times over. It took up the whole living room. Another time, so we're counting down to our wedding, and 100 days out, she gave me a little spiral-bound notebook, notebook with a little love note written for each day as we counted down to our wedding. I know. It's disgusting. 
Now, here's the thing. You can only count down to zero if you know when zero is, right? Otherwise, that, if you're always engaged but never married, then every day you turn the page and it still says 100. 100 more days. 100 more days. You can only count down to zero if you know when zero is. These patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they didn't, they didn't know when zero was. They couldn't count down because they didn't know when they were counting down to. They died in faith, still waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. They could see it. They could welcome it from a distance, but they couldn't count down to it. Which, as I was reading through this and studying this last week, I started to get this sense that that is not very nice of God. Right? To say, hey, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you into the land. When? Don't worry about it. It reminded me, actually, a lot of how I got out of helping my brothers with chores when I was a kid, right? My brother, one of them would come to me and say, hey, you said you were going to help me mow. And I'd be like, yeah, but I didn't say when. Why don't you go ahead and finish, and then I'll come help. So I started asking this question, is, is it fair of God to make a promise to someone that he doesn't intend to fulfill in their lifetime? And then I started wondering, well, is it fair of God not to? So God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to leave the land of your fathers. I want to leave everything you've known, your entire past, leave it behind you, head out into the wilderness. And Abraham says, great, where am I going? And God says, I'll tell you when you're there. In the verses we looked at last week, we had a, a special guest, Pastor Curtis Costin uh, from Solid Word Bible Church came, and, and he, uh, he led us through these verses last week. And he pointed out that, that Abraham, even though he had moved into the land of promise, it wasn't yet the promised land. He was looking even farther forward to a city, a city with foundations built by God. And what Curtis brought out, one of the points that he made, is that if we don't know what's permanent, if we don't know the promise, if we don't know what lasts, then we can't function well in the temporary. We can't function well in this world that is fading away. If we don't know what lasts forever, then we have no way of knowing if the thing we have right now is that forever thing or if it is going to fade and disappear eventually. So if God's going to call Abraham to leave everything behind, he's got to call him to some sort of future, whether that future is for his own immediate reception or for further down the line. So the more I thought about it, I thought, well, it, to me it feels not very fair for God to tell Abraham, I, I'm going to make you a promise, but I'm not going to fulfill it for you. But then it didn't seem very fair not to either. We have to know the end of the story if today's story is going to make any sense. And for Abraham, the end of the story wasn't in his lifetime. It was much further in the future. That's why verse 13 says, they, these all, all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later Joseph, all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But knowing the one who promised them, they could see the promises from a distance. They were so confident in the one who had made the promises that not even death could change their minds about the certainty of the fulfillment. 
they knew the one who had promised to lead them home, and so they, would, they knew they would get there someday, eventually. Well, what about us? Can we see the home? Can we see the fulfillment? Can we see the future fulfillment of the promises of God clear enough that we can live in the right now? We can live in the today. How clearly do you see your home, your true home? See, the, the dimmer our view of our true home, the easier it is to think that we're already there. Right? If we can't see clearly where we're going, then we tend to start to think that, well, maybe we've already arrived. If we're no longer on the way, but we're here, then this is all we've got. And then the tendency is to fall into one or the other sort of I don't know what to call them, pits of despair or something like that. So if we forget that we're pilgrims or strangers and foreigners in this world, then we're going we're gonna to continue to be restless. That will be our natural state. And so on the one hand, we're going to fall into this trap that says, you know, that whole sense that there's something more, that you were made for something more, that there is a place that really fits and suits you, that's a lie. Or if not a lie, it's at least a deception. There is no such place. And so we fall into this, often to one ditch of cynicism, despair. On the other hand, we say, no, no, it is a true thing, but I just don't have it now. I must have it tomorrow or, or in the next thing. And so we trade one relationship for another that we think will fulfill us. We trade one career for another, one job for another, one hobby for another, always thinking that it's out there, but it's, 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 it must be in the next thing. I got to go find the next thing. That's where home is. That's where I'll finally find the, the thing that ultimately satisfies me, that makes me feel like I'm worth something in this world. So on the one hand, we fall into despair and say, no, this, this world will never be our home. The other hand, we say, no, this world is our home. I'm just not, it's just it's the next thing. And we miss the central fact that this world is not our home, but one day it will be. But not because of anything we did. See, one day, one day this world will be our home when, as God has promised, heaven will come down, from earth, down to earth and the earth is redeemed. It's, it's made new again. It's restored, made whole. Uh, the earth is remade into the way God intended it from the beginning, except somehow even better for having taken into itself all of the, the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in us and between us and rolling that into this new creation, this new heavens and earth, and when heaven and earth are one. And God uses everything that we've done to make something even better because it's been redeemed. This world is not our home now, and we can't make it into our home, but one day God will bring heaven down to earth, and this world will be our home the place that perfectly fits us and suits us, where we discover who we really are before God. I mean, that's home. Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see it coming? 
because it's getting closer every day. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they could see it. See, verse 13 tells us they died in faith. They hadn't received the things promised, but they saw them. They greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Strangers and exiles is a key part of their self-identity of who they were. Spiritual refugees, in other words, on the way. People without a homeland living on this earth while seeking, looking for, not searching for, but seeking, moving toward their permanent home, their future home, their true home. In the next couple of verses, uh, our author explains how he came to this conclusion. Verse 14, he says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Uh, in other words, people who speak as if they are strangers and exiles make it obvious that they're looking for a homeland, which is what we see if we read the Genesis narratives of the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham in Genesis 23 says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. This isn't my home. Jacob, as he's dying, refers to his life as the years of my pilgrimage, the years of my wandering. So the author of Hebrews says, look, people who talk like this make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Literally, a land of their fathers. They're seeking their father's home, their father's land, a place of deep relational and spiritual and emotional familial wholeness and connection, the place that absolutely fits and suits them. The author goes on in verse 15 to explain, look, if, if they'd been thinking of their literal land of their fathers, their literal homeland, the place they came from, the place from which they had gone out, they had plenty of opportunities to return. My parents have been talking uh, off and on about selling their house. Uh, it's, it hasn't gone anywhere, the conversations, for a couple reasons. One is that my mom wants a smaller house in town, closer to people, and my dad wants a bigger house in the country, farther away from people. Um, so they've They've settled on the house they already have. Um, the second reason, I guess, is, is they were, we were talking about this the last time we were home. They're like, well, but you, you boys grew up here. I'm the first of five. They're like, you all grew up here. The house is just full of memories and also your stuff. If you could get that out of the basement, that'd be nice. But the house is just, you know, it's imbued with all these memories. For them, it's home. But every time I go back, it's just not anymore. I have lots of memories. I have, you know, memories of piling up huge mounds of snow outside the hayloft of the barn and then building a diving board and jumping out into the snow uh, or sledding off the roof onto the snowdrifts or pushing my aunt down the hill on a toboggan all the way down into the creek. They're all snow-related memories, apparently. Uh, just so many memories of growing up there, of working in the garage, of doing all, you know, that was my home, except it's not now. I mean, when I go back, it's the same, mostly the same. The compromise was they, they weren't going to move, and my dad built another garage. So, you know, 50-50, win-win there. But it, it's, it's the same. All the messes are the same. All of the stuff is the same. The house is the same. It just doesn't, it's not home anymore. Home's not behind me. It's somewhere up ahead. Every time I go back to 808 North York, I'm reminded I have memories there, but it's not my home. The author of Hebrews is making the same point about Abraham's life and his journey. He could have had the opportunity to go back 
to Ur where he came from. But he wasn't trying to go back home. It wasn't behind him. But he also wasn't trying to make his wilderness into his home either. Home wasn't around him. Home was in the future. Verse 16 makes that clear. It says he wanted an even better country, a heavenly one, a better homeland, a better fatherland, the land of his true father. See, these men, their families... They were on their way home, generation after generation after generation, to the land of their father, but they didn't make the mistake of confusing their true home for their current home. They knew they were on their way home, so nowhere on the way is home. And this is where the habit of faith The habit of believing that what God says is true is in fact true. This is where the habit of faith rolls over into the virtue of hope. Uh, That steadfast longing of our souls for a promised future reality. Uh, One author puts it this way. He says, if faith is more a transcendent vision, then hope is more an imminent expectation. Faith gives us new eyes with which to see the unseen But hope gives us a new hope, a new heart. Hope gives us a new heart that cannot be defeated by present pain or darkness. It's a new heart that cannot be defeated because we can see through faith the home that is coming. A a home that's described by another, another author as a life without restlessness. A life without restlessness. That phrase alone makes me long to be in a state where I'm no longer longing. It makes me want to stop wanting. Not in a stoic sense of, well, if I could just be detached from everything in the world, not want anything, then I'd be fine. But in a Christian sense, in that all of my longings will be fulfilled in Christ, in home. The author goes on, he says, it's life without restlessness because complete fulfillment has been achieved. All the limitations that mark this life, sin and ignorance and death and finitude and the like, are gone. And so there's nothing more to long for. There's nothing more to long for. He says there will come a point when we are home, when the virtue of hope is no longer necessary because everything we hope for will be actually present. We will finally, fully, completely be home. So we tend to think that that home is a lot like this, only better. But it's not what the patriarchs were looking for. They didn't want the country they had, only better. They wanted a a different kind of homeland, a heavenly one. And because of that, therefore... The author concludes, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city, a city with foundations, a true home. See, because of their habit of faith and their posture of hope, God says, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Except when you read the stories of the patriarchs, don't you think God should be a little bit ashamed 
I know a lot of you have, have read Genesis. You've gotten through it if you're in the Bible through the year program. I, I, they lived oriented towards fulfillment of the future hope, but they, if you read the stories, they didn't do that well. Abraham lied and pimped out his wife to cover his own skin. Then he slept with his wife's assistant in order to produce an heir until his own flesh and blood was born. And when that happened, then he threw off his illegitimate child and focused entirely on his own. That son, Isaac, showed such favoritism to his kids, two very different twin boys, that they were constantly at war with one another trying to win their father's affection and blessing. Jacob, the younger one, he was raised you know, in this climate of competition. Uh, he became known as the trickster, kind of the Loki of the Old Testament, constantly weaseling his way uh, into getting as much as he could out of the people who loved him, using trickery and deception to get whatever he wanted. If I were God, I would be ashamed of these guys, right? Like, I showed up. I talked to you. Can't you behave a little bit better? And yet, God says, the author of Hebrews writes, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Because even in the midst of all the dysfunction and the sin and the brokenness and the addiction, these men, their families, they were still, sometimes in these just amazing leaps and bounds, these huge moments, most of the time at a pace so slow as to be imperceptible, they were still moving toward home. And God says, I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not embarrassed if, to the best of your abilities, you can only follow me 1% of the time. He says, you're coming home. That's all I care about. Those of you with estranged children or, or children who aren't necessarily living the way you wanted them to, I, it becomes easier to understand God's perspective here when he says, I don't care what you've done, just come home. Come home. And if we're on our way, if we're moving toward home through faith in Christ, if we're like I said, even 1% of the time managing to pull our gaze back towards our home and the God who has promised it to us, then he says, that one's mine. Look, I know you're just crawling. That's fine. It's all you can do right now. Keep crawling. Come home. God says, if you're doing that, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. Which makes me wonder why why are we ashamed of us? Why am I ashamed of me if God's not ashamed of me? It's another sermon for another time. I think the question for us is, are we going to do what it takes, or what does it take, for us to keep pulling our gaze back towards home? What does it take for us to keep reorienting ourselves around the future promise that God has made to us. See, we've already said, if you can't tell the difference between your true home and this home, then we're going to be confused. We'll forget that we're on our way home, and when we're on our way home, nowhere on the way is home. We're not there yet. So we've got to ask ourselves, what's it going to take to keep pointing ourselves towards home? 
And briefly, a few things come to mind. I mean, first, we'll need clarity. We have to be reminded of what is home and what is not. We need people to tell us the stories and sing us the songs of our true home. We need to invite people to tell us those stories, to to pull us back along that path. We need clarity about where we're going. But we also need companions, traveling companions for the way. No one has ever been able to do this on their own. That's what the church has said. That's why there's a church. That's what the church has said throughout history. We have to travel the pilgrim way together. Because when we stray off and we start looking around and saying, this is pretty good, the church reminds us, no, we're on the way. We're not home yet. Clarity and community. Fellow brothers and sisters singing the songs and telling you the stories of your true home. Do you have that? Not just are you in its presence, but are you seeking it out? Are you pulling those stories into yourself? Are you reorienting yourself towards your home? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua, we hold them up as examples of faith because of, uh, Joseph, excuse me, we hold them up as examples of faith because of the clarity with which they saw God and the strength of the family, the community that traveled that path with them. In the few minutes we have left, the last couple of verses here, 17 through 22, they, they rehearse then these further examples of faith, people who lived with this mindset. It starts with Abraham, or actually finishes, it's the fourth of four statements about Abraham's faith, it finishes the Abraham story by saying, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. And we read that story, and if you've read it your whole life, then it, it's, the shock has kind of worn off. But for most of us, it's an odd story. It's, it's a weird story because we don't expect God. I mean, if somebody came to us today and said, God told me to sacrifice my child, we'd say, hold on a second. I don't think that was God. Now, Abraham, it's not like us. He, he had face-to-face with God. God had showed up and talked to Abraham over and over and over. And actually, if you read the narrative and and pay attention, every time God shows up, Abraham's life gets harder. But God shows up and he says to Abraham, I made you a promise. Through Isaac, the blessing is going to come. Through this son, I'm going to bless the entire world. Through him, now I want you to sacrifice him to me. Give him back. And for Abraham, the dilemma isn't, well, how am I going to do that? The dilemma is, how is God going to both fulfill his promise through Isaac if Isaac is dead? And so Abraham, facing this dilemma, didn't know what God was going to do, but he knew that God was going to do something. Actually, when he goes to uh, perform the sacrifice, he, they get to the bottom of the mountain, and he, Abraham tells his servants, hey, stay here. Uh, I and the boy are going to go up there, and we're going to worship, and then we will come back. He says, I'm going to go sacrifice my son, and when we're done, we'll come back. And so the author of Hebrews reading that, he says, uh, verse 19, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Abraham's faith 
in the future fulfillment of God's promise was so strong that not even death, his own or anyone else's, could get in the way. He knew God would do something. Now, each of the other three examples in these last few verses, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, each of them then is held up as an example of faith as someone who, uh, at the end of their lives, uh, blessed their children saying, God is going to be faithful. Trust him. God is faithful and he's going to be faithful. Trust him. All the way to the point where Joseph, at the end of his life, said, look, we're in Egypt now. I know that's not our home, but God is going to take us out of it. And when he does... Bring my bones with you. I want to go home. And 400 years later, it finally happened. See, each of these examples of faith in this second paragraph looked past now, their present circumstances. They looked past today and trusted the God who had promised the future. What about us? Right? When you read an example of faith, you're supposed to ask yourself, well, how am I doing with my faith? What about us? Now, I know with a group this size, we're facing a lot. Some of us have jobs that are in crisis. Uh, We've tried everything imaginable, and, and whatever that ceiling is, if we can even identify it, we just can't get past it. You know, we tried trying, and it hasn't worked, so now what? Some of us have families in crisis. On the one side is aging parents and decisions you never thought you would have to make for the people who raised you and taught you how to do everything you know how to do. On the other hand are kids who are making their own way in the world and not doing it as well as you would want them to. They've forgotten some of the things that we've taught them and and they're breaking our hearts. Some of us are in relationship crisis. The person you trusted with everything you have and everything you are has has betrayed you and walked away. How do you rebuild? Not just rebuild a relationship, but even rebuild an identity, a sense of who you are. Is it worth the work? Some of us are just in crisis all the time of the existential variety. What are we supposed to do with our lives? You know, what is all this education and all this work for if at the end of the day, uh, none of it fulfills and at the end of our lives, none of it lasts? You know, what's the point of working your way from the bottom to the top if the top is just as unfulfilling and unsatisfying as the bottom is? And if this world, if this world is our home, if this world is all there is, if there's nothing beyond now, then I would say, do your best to make some sort of heaven out of this hell that we're living in and go for it. Start over, try again, move on, trade in, trade up, get something better, do whatever it takes to be as fulfilled as you can be in this life. But if there's more, if this life isn't home, but it's the journey toward home, if there's more than now, if right now we're simply on the way, not yet arrived, then we stay and we struggle and we fail and our hearts break and we struggle more and we fail more 
and we try again. And we try something new, and we fail at that too. And we struggle some more. And we fail. And in the doing of all of that, we continually look towards home. Reminding ourselves, hey, I'm on a journey. I'm not trying to build home right here. It's in the future. My job right now is to go towards home and bring as many people along with me as I can. And it, it reorients the entirety, the entirety of our lives towards our ultimate destination. And it helps us, it enables us, we can't without this, it enables us to see everything, all the struggles of right now, as simply things that God is using to shape us into the kind of people who will be at home when we get home. Fulfillment is great. But God never promised it in this life. He said we're like Abraham, longing for a better country that is a heavenly one, a city whose foundations were built by God. We are all longing for home, for our true home, for a better country. We're not going to be at rest in this one. We will always be restless unless we realize that our restlessness comes from being on the way, not yet home. I said at the beginning of the sermon that if we're going to live well on the way while we're longing for and seeking our true home, we're going to need what the first readers of Hebrews needed. We need examples. We need people who have done this before us to show us that it, A, that it's possible, and B, how to do it. But even more than looking to faithful examples, we need to look through the faithful examples to the one in whom they had faith. If our gaze stops at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we, we're not looking far enough. We need to look up to Jesus, to the Son of God himself. The one who, though he had the opportunity to stay in his homeland, in his father's home, in the place that fit and suited him perfectly, he left his home, came to earth, and died the exile's death so that you and I could come home. You know, verse 15 was talking about Abraham, but it might as well have been speaking of Christ. If he'd been thinking of that land from which he'd gone out, he would have had plenty of opportunity to return. But as it is, he desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one, for you, for me, for all of us. We can live well on the way Longing for and seeking our true home because we're following the one. We're following Jesus, the one who left his true home to come to us and bring us back with him. Follow him because he's leading us home. Pray with me. Together, let's ask God to speak into our hearts what we've heard this morning. God, you are the father of our homeland. We desire to be where you are. 
We're humbled, we're grateful, we're amazed, we're awed that your son, your only son, the one that you love, that Jesus would give up his home to find us in exile and bring us back. And now through faith, we can see that home with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are inflamed with the hope, the, the confidence that one day you will bring us there. Lord, help us not to look around us and think that we've arrived. Help us to see everything around us as gifts that you give to us, provisions along the way, but only intended to be provisions, temporary, to be used as we go home. Father, your spirit is in our hearts calling us home. Pray that you would tune our hearts to hear, to listen, to see the future you have for us, to long for home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.